Hello, welcome back to Luxi, the podcast to reignite your wonder by exploring the science behind luxury items. We're continuing our summer interview series with artisans and scientists, and this week we get to talk to Brendan from Banshee Forge, a blacksmith out of the Pacific Northwest. We know you're really going to enjoy this episode as much as we did. Is that is that correct, Brendan? Is that how you would identify yourself? I technically went to school to become a blacksmith. Yes, you can call me a blacksmith. <laughs> Great. I guess that was my first question was, how did you get into blacksmithing? Where did it all start? Originally, I thought I was going to become a set designer. I was volunteering for the uh, local theater and it was very not permanent form of art. And I came home and turned on the TV and there was a blacksmith and I thought like everybody, oh, People still do that. And <laughs> then I went and did an apprenticeship in Oregon while going to welding school. And then uh, after doing that, I went to Kootenai School of the Arts in Canada. Uh, that was, I mean, we're close to 20 years now. That's amazing. When you do a, an art school like this, does it involve a lot of metallurgy? Like, do you get into physics or the chemistry of what you're doing? I, I suppose there's there's no way to avoid it, right? That, yes, you, you have to be aware of the material and how it's going to interact with whatever application you're using it for. Like if you're making a knife, you want to hire carbon steel, or if you're welding up a table, it can just be mild steel. You know, if it's going to be in a marine environment, it's going to be able to resist rust for the for the knives, is the higher carbon steel to do with the sh- strength of the blade? Or we just recorded a podcast on metal smithing, and we were talking about the grain of the metal, or the amount of carbon, and I the think. amount of carbon in the iron, both, which I think would be applicable for when you're making a blade. Is that? Yeah. How would you make a blade? What's like the right way to make a, a like say a hunting knife? <laughs> let's say. Okay, I'm not a scientist. I can regurgitate what I've learned in school through trial and error using the scientific process, I guess. Yeah. Uh, there you go. That's all you need. That iron or uh, all steel starts off as iron with a little carbon added to it. And the carbon acts as a kind of a switch. If you took the extreme, you got rot or wrought iron has no carbon in it. And then cast iron has like so much carbon in it that the switch of it being able to be tempered it's turned completely on. That's why it's brittle. So if you're making a knife, you want just enough carbon in the iron to harden, but then temper back an edge so that it can resist if you're cutting up a, a deer, if it's a hunting knife or whatever it is. Uh, and so that process is like what is like going to a certain temperature and then quenching it to, to kind of get it to harden a little bit more, like by dipping it in water. You don't often dip it in water. So what what happens is you would heat it up to a point that can test it with a magnet and make sure that a magnet will no longer actually make contact or stick to it when it's at the right oh. temperature. Yeah. Then you would control temperature of the quench and use a viscous fluid like uh. Uh, oil. You could use water, but you'd want to add a lot of like salt to it to make it so that the water doesn't sap the uh, heat out of the steel too quickly because mm. when it shocks it into being really hard if it shocks it too quick it'll become brittle mm-hmm. and you don't want that you want crystals take that after the, the quench and temper it by raising the uh, temperature up to a specific point so it gives it durability that's really interesting there's a lot of parallels to glass work with the you not wanting to shock it 
back into room temp too quickly, right? Well, yeah, I mean, you don't, those stresses on the glass as mm -hmm. it's cooling are not balanced out. So the glass can explode yeah. even if it's not mm -hmm. annealed properly. Yeah, if you do it too fast. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, metal doesn't do that. I don't know. But, Does metal explode? Well, no, it Everything can do explodes. that. If you if you <laughs> took a blade and actually quenched it too quickly or the wrong kind of metal, it would actually cause little micro fractures. And wow. uh, it's a really disappointing thing if you've been working on a knife for a long time and hours and yeah. hours going into it. And then you go to do the quench and you find out, oh, there was a little tiny micro fracture right there. And I cooled it off too quick. And sometimes it'll make a tinging sound and you realize hours and hours of labor have gone out the window oh that is such a bummer yeah fortunately I'll, it's happened a few yeah. times <laughs> yeah i mean you were saying about you know sort of the scientific method and trial and error and um because you, you went to school for it but how much do you feel your knowledge has sort of expanded after school just by this sort of tinkering around and trying to find the processes and the materials that you like to work with best. So I, I would never call myself like a bladesmith. I'm a blacksmith. I've mm -hmm. made knives, but most of the time in my career, it's been uh, creating ornamental ironwork. Oh, and cool. I've done copper countertops, chandeliers, and all kinds of fancy stuff for restaurants and uh, public art. But no, I, I love to hear that. And I'll tell you why. I mean, my my parents have a fascination with wrought iron, and it is all over their house. <laughs> it is. And I've heard that wrought iron is an extremely low carbon metal. Kind of there's these like puddling and some other techniques for making it. It's difficult. Actually, um, most blacksmiths these days actually do not use wrought iron mm. because it's difficult to come by. So you're using mild steel mainly. Um, and wrought iron is, it's got a lot of very particular qualities that make it desirable for um, smithing. But it's in such low demand these days. Um, I'll give you an example. Okay, wrought iron has so little carbon in it, almost nothing, that it actually has a grain to it. If right. you look at old wagon wheels and stuff, it'll mm -hmm. actually show that it, it wants to be forged one way versus another way. So it's right. almost more like working wood in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, mild steel is crucible steel, which has all of the grain of it and everything has been taken out of the whole process. And it's a uniform uh, texture to deal with. I was really surprised to find that metals have a grain to them naturally. So I had a question because you mentioned that you worked with copper as well. And so what are some of the overall principles that are the same, no matter what metal you use? And where do you have to sort of customize the process depending on what metal you're working with? So I think one of the reasons why metal workers throughout time have actually been deemed all these like mystical qualities is they're mm -hmm. having to perceive aspects of a material and what you're doing to it and then what the cause and effect is going to be so if you were working copper and say you wanted to drill a hole precisely in a one spot start drilling on it the copper actually work hardens so if you're not aware of that and you went and used the center punch to mark the hole exactly where you want it and you start drilling on it you've now created a little tiny hard spot that your drill bit's going to want to slip past and it mm. won't be exactly where you want it to be Steel, on the other hand, you can use a center punch, drill it exactly where you want. Copper will, when you go to quench it, it actually becomes softer oh. as opposed to steel where it becomes harder. 
That's interesting. So as you're working the copper, you might work it cold, but then you have to actually heat it up and then quench it to make it soft again so you can work it some more. So it's all about knowing what the material is actually doing and then mm-hmm. adjusting what you're doing in accordance with it. But knowing the, okay, if I hit a piece of copper, it's going to become harder. And then at a certain point, it's going to crack. Well, let's talk about set design. How Does does some of this work go into set design? Have you Have you been like contracted out to do a set that involved some blacksmithing or metalsmithing in general? The uh, set design dream kind of ended right out of high school. But uh, since uh, getting into metalworking, I've I've gotten to make like, I'll give you an example. I've had clients who my favorite clients are nerds with money. Just want to say that out there. Any nerds with money, come my way, please. That's because, basically what uh, our podcast is, is I think our, our target audience yeah, is. Okay. Well, I, I, join us. Hello, people, future clients. <laughs> uh, so uh, some of the coolest things I've gotten to make uh, were like objects from video games like Zelda, or it might take as much effort to make a hand railing as it does make a Zelda shield. Right. But when you hand it over to the client and it's the object from the video game that they just, you know, they're pined after, it's, you might as well be handing them Excalibur and it's sort <laughs> of, it's a lot more satisfying. Getting to make the real version of a thing that you might see in a movie, that's yeah. very satisfying and sort of the realm of that that I still get to inhabit. So what is your favorite thing to make? Like, do you have a favorite, like you said, you've made some blades. Do you have a sort of favorite type of metal and a favorite object to forge? Seven years, I worked for a couple other artists on the island and we made uh, giant plants. So we were taking steel, which everybody assumes is a cold, you know, kind of uniform. Everybody's used to seeing industrial steel and then making it look alive. So it's the juxtaposition of this thing that everybody thinks you can't be one thing and you turn it into something completely different. So I like making trees and plants and art nouveau kind of stylistic things. That's really cool. Oh yeah. I think I, I know what you're talking about. I, I believe I've, I must've seen some of your yeah. work or something. I don't know. Is there, is there some of your stuff publicly visible there in, in, I guess in Seattle or in that area? Oh, uh, so the, the people I used to work for, we did artwork that spanned the country. Basically we did things that were in Seattle. Uh, we have work off of Washington, DC, um, the Capitol Mall, six stories of medicinal plants and the American Association of Medical Colleges. Um, I did none of the design work on that. I just got to be one of the Smiths in the uh, shop. Then I worked in other shops where we did signs for Mods Pizza, hundreds of them, where it was very different route. But the uh, giant trees uh, are kind of my favorite thing to make. It seems like it's a lot of fun. Do you have... Um... You know, I've heard with other artisans, especially potters and ceramic artists, that the clay kind of tells them what it wants to become at some point in the process. Do you feel that too with the with the metal sometimes, or is it really more a pre-specified design? And then how do you execute it with the metal? With metalworking, it's more of like, a, depending on the client, some of them are very particular. But if you're making something like deco, the lines, a straight line has to be a straight line. Right, And one of the things about uh, working with steel that most people don't seem to realize is that it moves as you're working with it. So if you're welding up a box, it will create tension in different spots on the box, depending on how you sequence your welds. So you can take something that you cut all the parts exactly perfect, 
but each one of your welds is becoming a little spring pulling it in a different direction. So you have to be aware, again, aware of what the metal is doing and then adjusting yourself according to what's happening. So it's, it's not square until it's cold and square. Mm-hmm. Is there a bit of optical illusion in there where in order for it to look square, it's not actually square? Or is it? are you aiming for that precise sort of numerical measured 90 degree angle? If I'm creating something that's supposed to be a certain thing, I make it within a 30 second of it actually being that thing. You're talking like a carpenter now. Carpenter. <laughs> so my brother does a lot of painting. And in painting, there's there's some tricks that you use on the canvas because our eyes see things a certain way, right? There's this, this the perspective and the, the field of vision that you're trying to create. Um, and so I know that sometimes things seem to look level or square to us when they're not really just because it's a bit of a trick of the eye. Yeah, but that's a two-dimensional canvas trying to display a three-dimensional item. Brendan, I think, has the benefit of having a three-dimensional item from the start. A lot of my jobs have been dealing with people's houses. And Mm. again, carpenters don't tend to know what square is. They're dealing with a very natural um, material and they have to work with it and then create the optical illusion of it being square. Yeah. So familiar with that one. My uh, work has to then take that into account. So if I made something absolutely square and their wall is out of plumb, mm-hmm. then everything is going to look catawampus. So yeah. I, it's slightly infuriating, but sometimes I will have to actually, yes, cheat and <laughs> follow the lines that were set out before me by another artisan who I'm sure was doing the best they could. I want to know eventually what's the smallest thing you've had to to forge and what's the biggest. And then if you've ever done any kinetic sculptures, like oh, sculpture that moves. I love the kinetic ones. Oh, um, so the smallest thing I've ever forged was a small pin for a, a printing press. There was a guy up the road from me who had a vintage printing, printing press from like the early 1900s and uh he forgot to clip a spring into place and the machine kind of ate part of it. And <laughs> I had to forge out and temper this little tiny set pin for him. Uh, I have made some kinetic art actually recently. Oh, I was on the team of people who built, I'll give credit to where credit is due. I did none of the electrical installation on this, but it was a chandelier that was nine foot across so at the highest point. It had a weather vane on the roof of the building that uh, with a shaft that came down that was connected to a compass needle. So as you're sitting in the fancy seven course meal restaurant, you can look up and see uh, what direction the wind is blowing outside. Oh, that's great. That's I like really that cool. Where do people like research you do? Is Instagram where they find out how do you create a network as an artisan doing what you do? Like, um, because I mean, I, when I think blacksmith, I don't think social media star, but I'm seeing <laughs> oh. this here on your, I, on your Instagram. And as, what's the story of creating that sort of uh, space for yourself as an artisan? Instagram was actually the result of me being terrible with uh, computers and keeping track of my phone and keeping it operational 
is sometimes a challenge in the metal shop. I break a few of them every once in a while. So it's a place to post photos of my work and uh, try and save it in uh, somebody else's brain if it, or the cloud. It's, it's all going to the cloud. Um, <laughs> the networking, I've been very fortunate. I live on a small island and through word of mouth. Have you heard of the show Forged in Fire? Yes. Okay, so I I got invited to be on that show because of an Instagram page that oh. I got, oh. and uh, it was a fun experience. I regret none of it, other than I didn't win. So that gave me some level of notoriety, you know, sort mm-hmm. of uh, a failed reality TV star. And I think that's great. Yeah, I think that's really cool. How many of us can say failed reality TV star on our resume? Very few of us. Well, I think also yeah. just in general for sort of promoting the art form or what I remember is going to see it done in like the colonial village in Sturbridge, Massachusetts. Right. (laughs) And so I think it's really cool that they had the show and that you were able to participate and show that the modern version of this art form. Yeah. And the the modern version of it, um, there's definitely a lot of hammering depending on the budget that you're working with. Uh, Cause it's, it's quite a bit more labor intensive to join things together the old fashioned way of, forge welds and rivets and that kind of stuff so sometimes you you have to employ modern welding techniques to put a thing together i'll i'll give you the process of when i'm making a tree Um, typically if i'm making an organic structure i'll forge the components separately and then with the idea in mind that i want a very specific shape to occur at the end Mm-hmm. it's difficult to take a tree trunk that might be four inches across and forge weld leaves onto it because now you've got the, there's logistical problems there. Yeah. You can't have a, my forge is not big enough to put a whole tree into. <laughs> so I might have to take and cut the pieces the right way and then fabricate using mm-hmm. welding techniques mm-hmm. to join the stem to the leaf to the leaf or stem to the tree. That makes mm-hmm. sense. I'm sure at some point there are greater blacksmiths than me. If you look at like the the, the gates of Notre Dame, l- most people don't really realize that that's actually like a wonder of the world. The shop that would have actually had to exist for that thing to be forged, mm. and it's all old techniques mm-hmm. that that's master level that we have. I don't think we really have around anymore. I'm sure if Leonardo da Vinci had a, a welder and a plasma torch, he'd probably be using it as well, though. Yeah. Not that I'm any kind of Leonardo da Vinci, but I'd like to think he would. What would be um, your dream project? Have you ever thought of something you'd love to do and you're just waiting for a nerd with cash to show up <laughs> at your door? My dream project. Oh, man, that's a hard one. <laughs> I... I'm a big Lord of the Rings buff. Basically, when I was a little kid, my dad would read Lord of the Rings to me. And I would eventually like to be asked to make like the Hobbit door, um, Mm. the metalwork on that. Now, I I say that because I'm also there's a a fair amount of jealousy that a friend of mine who is a genuine, if anybody could do any of the old timey mastery of blacksmith techniques that everybody has in their mind, it's Jeff Holtby. He uh, he made a Hobbit door that I got to go help with the install on, and I got to sweep the floor on, <laughs> in the Hobbit house. It was amazing. I don't think I'm allowed to tell you who the actual client was, mm. but it had a tunnel system underneath the Hobbit house so you could drive wow. a truck through. 
Wow. That led you to the stable with horses that were probably more, more than my truck. <laughs> so um, that if someone came out of the blue, wanted me to make a Hobbit door, I would, I would be very excited by that. <laughs> Sounds amazing. I, I think we'll have to post an image of the Hobbit door in the show notes, just to give people an idea of how difficult that would be. It's it's not exactly necessarily the most difficult door to make. It's more that it's like when I was talking about earlier, when other people, I hand them the object from the video game and then it's real and they get all excited. Like it's Excalibur. The It's got that connotation for me. Yeah. And I think, I don't know. I feel like the Pacific Northwest is the exact right kind of place to build a Hobbit house. I feel like the terrain, the like kind of mistiness of it. Well, I think it's also a good place to have a forge. If you're working in a forge, you can't ask for better weather most months out of the year, right? That's true. Um, it's You want it to be kind of chilly out when you've got a, a forge baking you. And uh, there is a point of uh, diminishing return, though, I, I found when uh, on our brief occasion that we have like a day where it's snowing and um You'd think that would be optimum foraging weather, but my propane tanks actually start to suck so much gas out of them that the propane inside the tank freezes over and I can't get any pressure in my forage. So Mm. there's a a Goldilocks zone (laughs) that the Northwest seems to generally be in that is great because heat waves and then foraging giant petals on a flower uh, don't really go hand in hand. Comfort level aside, is there a difference in the metal and how it responds to you based on the temperature outside? Or is it just so hot in the forge, it doesn't really matter? Oh, uh, it definitely matters. The ambient temperature will affect the amount of time that you have to work with the metal. The steel, it wants to be in a Goldilocks zone for Mm. your blows on the the steel will move it in a way that it looks friendly and uh, like clay. But if it starts to cool off too quickly, you'll end up with a chunk of metal that looks all dinged on and stuff. And if that's the look you're going for, great. But you should actually be creating what you intended to create. It should look beautiful if you stopped at that moment. And if it's a cold piece of metal and you're just hammering away on it, that's harder to do. And it looks ugly. You also have the potential of turning our listeners into the ultimate ironworking snob. (laughs) Oh, "Oh, yeah. They absolutely should have uh, standards. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. (laughs) Standards are important. I don't know why we gave up standards, people. Have you ever had an instance where something surprising happened and you were like, oh, I actually like that better than what I had planned? I've absolutely had that happen. Typically, it's on my own projects where I haven't shown the client a drawing of the the thing and right. or you know, I can divert off task or if I have the right client who's willing to just accept, oh, this is more beautiful than what we intended to make, then mm-hmm. yes, uh, hitting the anvil not when you intended to, but it uh, ended up becoming beautiful. So it's fascinating. We're quiet because we're absolutely... I, I love the story. Yeah, fascinated. <laughs> so. one, one question I have is, let's say, for example, you're in the kitchen and you need a, a beer bottle opener. Can you just run out to the forge and, and make yourself one? Or <laughs> like, it's I know it's a hassle to get everything fired up, but what what's what's running a forge like? Is it is it um it's super expensive? Is it something where you can just turn on a propane tank and start working? It's not terribly expensive actually to uh, run the forge. It is literally turning on a propane tank. Uh, everybody asks, you know, when they start to get into blacksmithing, they ask, 
you know, your local blacksmith, what tool should I buy? And everybody seems to be very fixated on the forge. I make my own forges. Oh, cool. It's not difficult to actually make a forge. You have to have a, a container that holds heat in. You use mason, special refractory cement, and you can build a jet relatively easy if you have a welder. You need a hard surface to hammer against a hammer and... And a pinch, you can take a garbage burner and a hairdryer and make a forge. So it's actually relatively uh, low cost of entry. Yes, theoretically, if you uh, can MacGyver yourself some, a few things, you can mm-hmm. get into blacksmithing fairly easily. When I very first started out, I had a carport tent in my uh, parents' yard that I ramshackled a forge together. It probably cost me 500 bucks. Demos has this look on his face that I interpret as we might be getting a forge in our backyard at some point in the future. <laughs> I have a 3D printer and a soldering iron. Now I'm ready for a forge. This is true. I think oh. that's the next step in the process, right? <laughs> nice. But you've got, I would say, how many years now have you been in the craft? 2004 is when I first uh, moved down to Portland for welding school and did a blacksmithing apprenticeship. I was basically a uh, Goomper in a, a another Smith's shop, and he had me forging out simple things and selling them on his website. They were like little Thor hammers and hooks, and so since 2004, and that has been the only monetary job that I've ever had was all metalworking, except for this last year where a buddy of mine opened up a lumber mill, and so I've been working in a a lumber mill. Uh, I'm doing it because I'm getting deals on slabs of wood so that I can make uh, <laughs> fancy furniture partially yeah. for myself, cool. uh, forged legs on live edge tables, that kind of thing. But no, that's cool. That sounds really beautiful. Yeah. And are you are you thinking that's another step for you? I I definitely want to work with uh, some other mediums and metal. Twenty years of a lot of just metal. You start to wonder what other materials are like. Is cast iron a thing you've ever thought of going into? Have you done cast iron work? We haven't talked about that much. I did do foundry work in college, but it was uh, bronze casting, like lost wax and sand casting of aluminum. There seems to be so much great cast iron. You see whether it's on like the clawfoot tub or something like that. You can get some amazing shapes with cast iron. It's uh, the entry point for doing cast iron is a little higher it takes a lot of heat to Mm. melt down with the amount of iron that you'd want to make anything with unless you're doing something very small like my experiment doing cast iron i it was like the size of a coin basically it's a little you know the cast iron typically it's like these giant smelting foundries that Mm. use electrodes and you know one after the other right (laughs) yeah i guess so well one question i guess is what let's move on a little bit to the next stage in presenting this art and which we haven't addressed yet is painting it or giving it a luster or giving it a color or or even a patina or just preserving it because so you know if your art's going to be outside how do you how do you do you coat it what do you do for the lovely pacific northwest rain (laughs) oh well uh, so there's a couple different things you can do. Um, um, well, a whole bunch of different things you can do. Um, one would be just accept that it's going to rust. And mm-hmm. if it's a really big, thick piece of metal, it's going to last out there for most of the duration of 
uh, anyone who's listening to this podcast right now is <laughs> life. It will probably survive. Um, it'll definitely develop a patina. Yeah. Uh, or you could uh, electroplate, uh, zinc coatings, powder mm. coatings. Uh, essentially, I've tried to match whatever coating I am using to whatever it's going to be encountering on a day-to-day basis. If it's mm. an interior piece, you can get away with just furniture wax. Mainly paint clear coats are great, but if you are going to be interacting with this thing, whatever it is in a way that it's going to get scratched, Mm. it's going to show the scratches. Mm -hmm. What about copper? Is there any way to get copper to not turn green? Not turn green. That is uh, (laughs) a clear coat. You could also wax, but it's copper's considered to have a, a living patina. Yeah. If if you're picking to use copper inside of your house for like a countertop or something, you got to kind of accept that it's going to end up looking like the bar, like the bar around the corner where everybody's spilled yeah. their drink on the table. <laughs> and it's it's, it's going to develop its own characteristics over time. Yeah. yeah. I think it's the cost of entry for you as the customers knowing what to expect. With yeah. Copper. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to have sample pieces and photos of other works so people mm-hmm. can see what they're going to expect. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I wouldn't choose copper necessarily for a countertop just for wear and tear and use. I mean, it's a softer metal, but have you done a lot of copper countertops? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I worked on a in a shop. Tim mm-hmm. Leonard, Heavy Metal Works. Uh, we did uh, neon signs and old-fashioned sheet metal fabrication and a lot of uh, bar countertops and residential that kind of thing neons i love neon signs have you ever integrated uh your work into a neon sign i've built the uh metal boxes for my former employer's uh neon glass he, he was a neon man i i've never touched the glass i was too uh paranoid to be breaking all of his expensive glass from venice electricity i i try and limit my exposure to it because i tend to electrocute myself enough being a welder so is it, you know, funnily enough, Demos uh, tries to avoid electricity as well, and he's an electrical engineer. <laughs> yeah, it. see, we've we've learned the lesson. It would be yeah. crazy if we were just super excited about it. Yeah, oh, I God. remember, uh, you know, so COVID was interesting times, and the shed in our backyard became a bit of a fabrication lab for his work. He came in one time, he's like, I'm shocked. And I was like, what? What happened? What are you shocked about? And he's like, no, I literally just shocked myself. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, nothing like 350 volts across your hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we have... We've been talking for a while. Yes. This has been great. And we've learned a lot. Yes. Uh, well, I hope it's some entertainment value derived from my rambling. <laughs> no, but like I said, it's so fascinating. You know, I think that at least I feel like I've had more exposure to artisans than I have in other places that I've lived, right? Yeah. So for me, getting to talk with people who are passionate and dedicated to what they do and what they build with their hands is always interesting. Well, thank you for uh, allowing me the opportunity to try a podcast out. Yeah, but if you're interested, I would we would be interested in your take on our podcast episode that just came out on metallurgy. You can you can you can fact check us and see if we got our, our be facts, brutal. Be facts brutal. right. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll give it a listen. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brendan. We really appreciate the time, especially since the time difference is what it is. <laughs> right. Oh, no worries. Actually, uh, I got giving myself a day off because it's technically my birthday today. So, oh. Uh, oh. yeah, I, no, I'm not fishing for a birthday or anything like that. Uh, what? I, I guess I sort of was. I was fishing for a happy birthday on a podcast, but I guess not. 
Well, as we sit here in Greece, Kronopola, many yeah, years. Many years to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I hope you guys have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks a lot, Brenda. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Luxi. Our theme music is Harlequin Mood by Birdie. As always, a big thank you to my audio engineer, Demos. Please like and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow us all over social media at Luxi Pod.